Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Michael Vigorito is a sex therapist, author, trainer, and supervisor. He is affiliated with the University of Maryland Prevention Research Center, where he co-developed and implemented the Sexual and Gender Diversity Learning Community, a CDC-funded program to train mental health providers to conduct LGBTQ affirmative practices and to integrate sexual health into their systems of care. He co-designed a sexual health assessment and treatment protocol published in Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction, co-authored with Douglas Braun Harvey. Mr. Vigorito provides individual and group psychotherapy in his Washington, D.C. private practice, specializing in treating problematic and out-of-control sexual behavior. More information about his work can be found at www.michaelvigorito.com. Today we have Michael Vigorito with us, and I'm so pleased to have you here, Michael. I, I think I shared this with you, but I want to share this with our listening audience. Your book with, with Doug Braun Harvey was very, very influential to me personally and professionally. And I know we're going to be talking about themes that are in your book, but I just want you to know that it really illuminated parts of my own recovery, my own healing, and so many uh, aspects of what I work with all the time in my office that it, it just was fantastic. And it's it's quite a project to read the book because mm -hmm. it's so full of a lot of dense themes and, and ideas and uh, research-based um, ways of looking at out-of-control out sexual behavior. And yet it was the perfect pandemic book for me because I sat down and I, I read it from cover to cover. And, and I'm just so pleased to have you here on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for the feedback because you know, it's one of those things when you write a book, you kind of put it out into the world and you don't know how it's being received. So it's always nice to hear uh, that it had some impact for people. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Of course. So... The thing about our podcast is we haven't had a whole lot of folks who talk specifically about sexual health, mm. and it's definitely been missing as part of the podcast. And so I'm wondering if we can just start off by by asking the question, how do you, Michael, understand mm. sexual health? It's a great, it's a great question. One of the things that I, when I teach on this topic, and I ask this question to the audience, uh, I asked them, like, what do you think about sexual health? And inevitably, it's a lot of focus on disease or dysfunction, right? Which I think is a part of sexual health, but it is not the only part of that of sexual health, right? In that definition, sexual health just becomes the absence of a disease or dysfunction, which to me is not very helpful. Uh, so my definition is usually kind of multi-dimensional, right? I look at biopsychosocial factors. 
Uh, but I don't want to just focus on the bio piece. And what is probably the most helpful for the people that I work with in my practice is I invite them to consider a, an ethical framework that looks at how clients can have pleasurable sex in a responsible manner, right? So the, the work that I do is primarily with men concerned about sexual behavior problems or out of control sexual behavior. And so one of the first things I ask them uh, is, you know, what is your vision of sexual health? Like, what is it that we are moving toward? right? Because they're usually coming in and very clear about what they want to stop, what they don't like, uh, what's been problematic. And I want to hear all of that. But then I also then want to turn the conversation. I was like, all right, I understand what's been problematic for you, but where are we going toward? So then I asked them this question. I was like, what is your vision of sexual health? And they usually stare back at me blankly because no one's really asked that question. Uh, So it becomes this opportunity to educate. And if you like, I can go into more about what that ethical framework is because it's a, a set of sexual health principles that, to me, can be helpful for clients and clinicians to guide them regarding sexual decision making, right? Either for clinicians to guide them in when they're intervening and why, but with my clients, it's to help guide them about the type of sexual behaviors that they are engaging in. Sure. I mean, I'm really interested in in how that really expands on what you're talking about today. So sure, why don't you talk about the principles? Sure. So these principles came out of a publication from the Pan-American Health Association, World Health Health Organization. It was in a discussion about responsible sexual behavior. Uh, And Doug, my uh, co-author, pulled out of this paragraph in that, that publication what soon then evolved into the principles that we have published in our book, right? So I always like to, to source it first so people don't think that it's just uh, ideas from two guys uh, from San Diego who said, this is what we think sexual health is, and you should think this too, right? It came more out of a consensus body uh, of uh, providers who are trying to help move medical and mental health fields to considering sexual health and how to work with it. So those principles that we developed out of this this paragraph around responsible sexual behavior first start with consent, right? That everyone is consenting to be there uh, throughout the con- uh, throughout the encounter, right? That everyone's consent is considered. Everyone is a age of consent. All of those mm-hmm. issues. The next one is around non exploitation, right? That people aren't using and leveraging power and control to have sexual access to someone or to have sexual gratification over another person, right? It exploitation can corrode someone's ability to consent, right? Mm-hmm. The next one, the one I mentioned earlier, right, is protected against um, unintended pregnancies or uh, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the only piece of sexual health, but it's still an important piece, right? Uh, and then the next three, I think, are important because they also help people understand what they are consenting to, right? So the first one is around honesty. And here we're talking about first being honest with oneself about what I like, what I don't like, what I want to do, what I don't want to do. And then they can hopefully be open and honest with other people about what they like and they don't like, right? So it informs what they're consenting to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is around shared values. So if you think about sex as a behavior, uh, behaviors have different meanings depending on who's doing the touching and where and the context in which it's which is happening, right? So oftentimes they say, it's like, you know, if my elbow touches your shoulder, that means something completely different than my hand touches your butt, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I want to know what the meaning is of the behavior that we're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And some meanings that people can consider, I guess, is sexual behavior, recreational, procreational, uh, relational, right? And is it happening in the overlap? So are there shared values among the people participating? And then lastly is mutual pleasure, that my pleasure is considered, your pleasure is considered, everyone's pleasure in this room is having sex is being considered. And it's one of the few definitions or constructs around health that include this concept of pleasure, right? That mm. I think is vital when we're having sexual health conversations with our clients that we have to include this piece because mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we're missing the primary reason why people are having sex on uh, how people are trying to get their needs met uh, or have a way that, you know, a sexual expression that is satisfying and pleasurable for them. So we have mm-hmm. to talk about pleasure. It's so interesting because as you know, I've been in the 12 step rooms a long time and mm-hmm. pleasure, even the word pleasure doesn't get much airtime. And, and I love what you said before about uh, pleasure, something pleasurable um, and responsible. Those were, those words stood out for me. And, and I just wanted to highlight that that's really what all of us want, right? I mean, as, Mm -hmm. as as human beings, and I I heard a, a, a woman who was a pleasure researcher, um, talk about this and, and talk about how in some in some places, it's taboo to even be exploring what pleasure really means in 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 all its dimensions. Mm-hmm. So I I just think it's fantastic what you're, what you're sharing about the principles because it it really speaks to what often doesn't get talked about in in honest conversations. Oh, I appreciate that, and and I agree. I think the conversation around pleasure, particularly among providers, for instance, is not something that they're prepared to have. And I like that concept of that. It's not just the sexual piece that can be taboo. It's we struggle with just talking about pleasure in general. Um, Mm -hmm. So I imagine much of the motivations in the rooms that you were talking about, there were times where people were motivated to use drugs or to drink because it felt good, right? Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is a a motivating factor uh, that without having the conversation, I don't know how we can have, you know, effective treatment plans or if people can analyze and evaluate their behavior to understand what was driving them. Like we don't have words and welcome the concept around pleasure. So along those lines, can you expand on this idea of why sexual health conversations are so important? Absolutely. So one of the other pieces of my job, besides being a a psychotherapist, is that I train providers in integrating sexual health into uh, behavioral health systems, right? To make certain that sexual health is routinely addressed uh, and screened for, that it is treated like a health domain on par with other health domains like physical health, mental health, spiritual health. You know, we want to have uh, an area around sexual health. And it's not, I think, an area that our profession historically has treated uh, on par as some of those other uh, dimensions. And as such, right there, if it's not included, then it's left to the individual provider on what they want to do. And so oftentimes they're either left under responding to Mm -hmm. a problem that showed up because they're unprepared. So they get themselves nervous about how to address it, right? So they just kind of ignore it. I always like to say therapists are people too. So we move toward what makes us comfortable in the room. Uh, or they they might over respond, right? And they might attempt to restrict someone's sexual expression because it either feels too risky or it makes the provider uncomfortable. So they kind of move to shut it down. So I talk about sexual conversations as being important for, for folks to be prepared to have 
because I want clients to ultimately feel comfortable in initiating conversations about sex with their providers. I want them to be able to have this space with their therapist to prepare and uh, expand their skills to work out whatever discomfort that they have so they can then have conversations with their sexual partners in a way that feels open and honest uh, and aligned with what it is that they want sexually and aligned with their values. That's the kind of the ultimate goal, why I think it's important to have these sexual conversations. But I also like to talk about like what then for the provider, what do I mean by a sexual health conversation? So mm. in my trainings, I break it down into three different areas. Like sexual health conversations are ones that honor client sexual autonomy, two, educates or informs about risk, and then lastly, centers uh, these conversations around client satisfaction and pleasure. All of our clients come into these rooms, uh, into our session rooms, I should say, uh, with sexual rights. I mean, one of them being around sexual autonomy, body autonomy, you know, the ability to consent. We want to be able to honor that they are sexual creatures. They are trying to get their needs met, and we want to make certain that there's space in our therapy to be able to talk about that and kind of respect that this is a right that they have and they can use us as resources. Uh, and then two, to want to educate or inform about risk because in these conversations, we might notice some knowledge gaps that we can come in to help them learn about particular ways of uh, expressing themselves to, to either reduce risk or to uh, really promote satisfaction. But knowing that people aren't necessarily motivated to have sex to reduce risk, right? So I think therapists are most comfortable in that part of the conversation. So they're just here about educating risk and they think, well, well, if they have this knowledge piece, then obviously they're going to make good decisions in the world and they will prevent risk. And we know that's not the case, <laughs> uh, but it's still, you know, information is still important, but it shouldn't be the only thing that they talk about or shouldn't, we shouldn't um, infuse uh, too much power in that part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think more of the power is around understanding pleasure and what is going to bring satisfaction to our clients. So can we help them achieve uh, satisfaction in the way that they are trying to have sex? Mm -hmm. So we don't have to go in this direction, but oh. when you were talking, <laughs> what what struck me is is what a cultural paradigm shift you're presenting that we all know that we, in this country anyway, come from a puritanical background. And the fumes of that are quite strong, especially in certain regions of our country. And so by introducing these honest conversations and, and, and really, um, I want to say questioning and, and pushing back in a way against mm -hmm. constraint or restriction um, feels like a, a brave new world. I mean, I, I, I don't think that there, are, I don't believe there are therapists um, in certain places, uh, in any state for that matter, but I'm thinking certain parts of this country that are a little more repressed, that are willing and able to really have these kinds of dimensional conversations that you're describing. So I, I just want to express my gratitude to you to for the clarity and the open-heartedness that you bring to this subject. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that where my mind was going when you were talking about that uh, is going back to the sexual principles. One of the, the, the tensions that we try to address in the book, right, is this idea that people have the right to be free to act. They also have the right to be free from 
restriction or oppression and discrimination, right? They, you know, we're talking about autonomy and rights. We're talking about you know, freedom from, freedom to. So the principles are trying to contain this tension. We want people to f- feel free to express themselves sexually, but it's not boundaryless. We don't want people to f- be free to express them sexually in a matter that restricts somebody else's rights to sexual uh, uh, sexual expression or mm-hmm. um, my right to sexual pleasure doesn't trump someone else's right to body autonomy. We are trying to find a way to capture that tension that, yes, we want people to consider their sexual pleasure and to express themselves, but knowing that it's not a boundaryless space. So what are some of the, the, the ethics of sexual expression that we want people to consider so that we understand what their motivations are, but we also take into consideration the rights and motivations of the people that they are having sex with. So when I was hearing your conversation around the, the puritanical fumes was the concern about the freedom from, right? The freedom from discrimination, freedom from oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, like For instance, like people who might have an unconventional sexual interest or people who are sexual minorities and they have restrictions from culture, from their faith communities, that they should not be the way they are. They should not express themselves in the way that they would want to. And I think it's an important that we can push back so people have the space to be able to, to express themselves sexually. But we also get criticized from the other side that, that the sexual crimes are going to be too boundaryless, that we're just focusing too much on pleasure. And I was like, well, both are true. Like there, there's a tension here because mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, like this is not boundaryless. So if we know that there are boundaries, what should they be? What do we want to consider? What are mm-hmm. the, the ethics that we want our clients to wrestle with in therapy so they can both consider what is pleasurable for them as well as the needs, motivations, uh, and desires of their partners, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we have offered and invite our clients to consider. Sure. So I want to remind our listeners that the name of the book that Michael Vigorito and Douglas Braun Harvey wrote is called Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction. Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior is a term that I would love to hear more about from, from you, from the mm-hmm. author of the book. What, what, what does it mean exactly? Great. No, that's, a, that's a great question. So it is not meant to be a diagnostic phrase, how uh, we are using it in the book. Uh, and I can give you the, the definition that we use specifically. We talk about how out of control sexual behavior is when someone's consensual sexual urges, thoughts, and behaviors feel out of control. First off, when in the book, we're primarily just talking about people engaged in consensual sexual problems. Uh, folks who are engaged in non-consensual sex, there is treatment for them uh, but this is not the book that is meant to to support providers in in that work. We're just looking at folks who are engaged in consensual sexual problems, like concerns regarding uh, repeated infidelity or concerns regarding uh, uh, masturbation to sexual entertainment, uh, as long as the sexual entertainment uh, is consensually based. When I when I started that uh, description, I told you like this is not meant to be a diagnostic phrase, right? It's like mm-hmm. if you think about major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, they have a set of um, criteria that if a person meets, they are then diagnosed with this treatment, uh, diagnosed with this, this disorder, and then treatment follows suit uh, based on what is you know, evidence based uh, for depression or bipolar. This is meant to capture this tension that there is no officially recognized diagnosis for sexual dysregulation currently in the U.S. And 
I, we wanted to create a phrase that uh, highlights a person's subjective experience without inserting a diagnostic label or an ideology that might not be true, right? So if you think about just even the term like sexual compulsivity, right, that uses uh, a diagnostic sounding term like compulsivity that as clinicians, we know have a particular definition, like a compulsion is a behavior to regulate an obsessive thoughts or manage someone's anxiety, right? So it immediately puts it in the anxiety family. A person's uh, experience of being out of control might be related to their anxiety. We don't know yet. So I want people to come in to talk about what's going on. And I want to preserve our curiosity about all the factors that can contribute to why someone feels out of control. So it's meant to be this placeholder to allow ourselves to be curious about all the ways in which someone could feel out of control. So curiosity, and I'm also hearing non-judgment, mm -hmm. um, and and really offering plenty of space for exploration without jumping to any categorical or diagnostic kind of yeah. um, conclusions. Yeah, like or just without like a singular overriding definition of what we think is happening. Right. And the phrase out of control sexual behavior, that also didn't come from us. Uh, that came from a research article published by John Bancroft, where uh, and a colleague of his, Bakatanovic, uh, they published a small study that was just trying to uh, contribute to the kind of diagnostic debate around uh, sex addiction and sexual activity, see if they can find a set of uh, criteria that could capture what's happening. And they published this study. It was a small research, uh, uh, small sample size. And in that, their discussion, they're like, since we don't have a diagnosis here and people are coming in for this issue, what do we call it? Right. And so they recommended just maybe more of a descriptive phrase, out of control sexual behavior, uh, as a way to language it without making some assumptions on the front end. And then Doug and I, took that. We're like, that's great. I think we can use that. But then when we were writing the book, we realized like, but what does that mean exactly? Out <laughs> right. of control sexual behavior. Because mm -hmm. that also has some limitations too. You know, um, I think Marty Klein said this when he said, you know, just because someone feels out of control doesn't mean they are out of control. Like a lot of times when people are coming in, they feel out of control, but there are times where they do bring their behavior in control. They are self-regulating. So I oftentimes like, well, when we're talking about feeling out of control, it's maybe it's on right after work and they're stressed and they're tired and they're scrolling through uh, Grindr or other sex apps, right? But during the work week or work day, they're focused, they're, they're doing their job. They're not out of control at that point. So that's interesting. It's not, they don't feel out of control all the time, uh, but at these particular moments. And already you can start to see we're getting mm -hmm. curious about the choices that they're making and the, mm -hmm. the functions of this behavior. And that's what I hope the phrase will do, which is kind of preserve this space of curiosity so the client and the therapist can get a better sense of what's happening for them. Correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I remember from the book that there were three areas of focus, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, one was attachment ruptures. One was nervous system regulation or dysregulation. And the third was erotic conflicts. And close, man, <laughs> please, man? yeah, of course. Um, the I think you were talking about the three clinical areas that we look at. So, right. after we go through a set of screening criteria that can look at how sexual behavior can be dysregulated and kind of triages care, we move into some clinical areas. So, the first clinical area is around self regulation, 
Uh, the second clinical area is around attachment styles, or uh, which would include attachment ruptures, right? And then the last clinical area is around sexual and erotic conflicts. So we're looking at with self-regulation, the me, like how do I regulate uh, my feelings? It could be how I either prolong or amplify how I'm feeling, how I uh, change or alter how I'm feeling. Uh, or you can look at self-regulation as how I align my behaviors with my value. And then we move to the attachment, which, you know, the we, right? I'm trying to find how people's relationship patterns might have an impact on their sexual choices, right? How people regulate emotional distance and proximity and how that might have a sexual consequence, right? Attachment is a motivational system, just like sex is a motivational system, but they're not the same. Mm. They might have mm. an influence, but they're different. You know, mm. for instance, like someone who might feel too disconnected in their relationship, one of them might be like to use sex as a way to bring them closer together. For another person, it's like, you are too far away from me emotionally. Let's reconnect and then we can have sex, right? So it actually put the brake on their, their desire to have sex in the moment. Um, mm. And that's going to be individual to the person. And then the last one, sexual neurotic conflicts, right? Um, do they have conflicts with themselves about their sexual orientation or erotic orientation? Do they have conflicts with other people about their sexual or erotic orientations? And how are they resolving those conflicts? And that's really where a lot of the shame work happens. All of, all three of those are so important and, and I think help outline for, for both clinicians and for clients what your model, I think, how valuable your model is truly. I would love to have you back just to talk about erotic and sexual conflicts because oh, I run into that all the time. And a lot of folks don't really understand their their own conflicts. Um, but I think that there's it's so multi-layered and mm -hmm. has such power um that if if you're willing, I would love to have another uh chance to talk with you just about that. Oh, absolutely. That's such an important part of the work and goes back to an earlier part of our conversation. It's all wrapped up in what is pleasurable, what turns people on. Uh, and so it can be such a difficult conversation for folks. So I would, I'm happy to come back and talk about that with you. Great. I would love that. And then for some reason, what I was imagining in the healing arc is to go from the erotic conflict to congruency. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, yeah. No, and, and and how in a way isn't that a core part of the the healing process when we're talking about anyone who's identifying with without a control sexual behavior? Yeah, that's. I think Dan Siegel's work talks about a nice definition of health as health is about integration, and when we're talking about conflicts surrounding one's sexual or erotic orientations, that is not that's a moment of disintegration right when particularly when we have shame around a part of ourselves right all of our shame defenses are not being about not being seen uh it creates splits uh between you know, our self-concept and this other aspects of our personality or our, our being and what i tell my clients is that i want to help them avoid having an adversarial relationship with a part of themselves, particularly a part of their sexuality and their eroticism, mm -hmm. because that is a, that is a losing battle. Uh, and it's antithetical to health, right? If health is about integration, having a conflict about one's orientation 
is that adversarial relationship that I'm trying to help them avoid. Mm. So along those lines, Michael, the idea of motivation is mm -hmm. is so um, challenging for for especially for clients when they first come in. They oftentimes will say, "I just don't know what's happened to my motivation," or mm -hmm. "I've never really been motivated." And I'm wondering if you could address that in terms of what what tends to motivate people for change. Yeah, and this part of the book is was heavily informed by. Uh, motivational interviewing and the readiness to change model, right? And I think they had a really elegant uh, description of of why people change. And I think it was around uh, the cost of the status quo is greater than the cost of change. And that when one's actions no longer lead to desired result, they develop an internal conflict about what's going on. You can talk about it as... Um, uh, cognitive dissonance, you can talk about it as self-discrepancy or internal conflict. And is that internal conflict, to me, is the spark of motivation for mm -hmm. change. Uh, so I am constantly listening for the motivations that are competing with their desire for change, mm -hmm. or what was the initial conflict that brought them to me. And so because I take such a motivational perspective, like I, I want them to bring that piece in so we can start mm -hmm. developing whatever that self discrepancy is. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure I'm matching them. Right. Because if I'm coming in from more, what they call like more action oriented interventions, it's like they've identified this problem. It's like, great. They're ready to make these changes. And here's a treatment plan. And we're going to organize your life and da, 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 da. But they're still ambivalent around it. They still are working through that conflict because they've, the, that cost hasn't shifted just yet, or they haven't trusted that the reward of the behavior is no longer there. And so it's just going to take some time. And that's one of the frustrating pieces of our job, right? Sometimes we have to sit in their ambivalence and really hold it. And it takes time. What, what I want to go back to is the idea that the conflict inside of a client is actually the catalyst for change. Yes. And that you're in, in your attunement and your empathy in the room, you're, you're really like a private investigator. You're wondering where is that conflict? What is that conflict? How can we illuminate that conflict so that it can be something that can actually help them move forward? Agreed. And one, one of the first things I'm, I'm asking them in the beginning, right? When I talk about what their vision of sexual health is, you know, it's related to this concept, like the first screening criteria in the book is client motivation. Right. And I'm trying to find their internal motivation because oftentimes they come with some external motivators, right? That I might lose my job. I might lose my wife. Uh, I want to be part of my kids, which is connected to some internal pieces. Right. But I really want to find out where their internal motivation is. Right. What are their drivers? What are competing with those drivers? Because that to me is what's going to sustain change when I know it's coming from mm -hmm. them. Mm hmm. So along those lines, which mm -hmm. motivations do you find most effective for long-term growth? Yeah, I think like the, the standard answer is what I just mentioned. It's like around the motivation has to come from the person. That's from them. Necessarily mm -hmm. external to them. But I also don't want this conversation to be to sound overly individualistic, right? Because I want to encourage my clients to interrogate why they want to change their behavior. And what is it about their sexuality? What is it about their, their behaviors that they don't like? Uh, to figure out, it's like, all right, I, we, I hear that you don't like, but where does that come from? Is that something you've internalized from 
uh, your family of origin or internalized from society because something that you're interested in is unconventional. And let's evaluate that. Is that something that is a value that you want to hold? Where does that come from? Is that okay with you or does that feel congruent? Some of the, where some of the problems can occur is where some of the incentives lie, right? Because mm. some of this work around accepting oneself could really put relationships at risk, which are also motivating, right? So if I am accepting this part of me that is uh, unconventional, that conflicts with who my, my spouse thought they married or conflicts with the tenets of my religion, I mean, that is a very powerful motivation to not accept that part of oneself or not to resolve that internal conflict. Mm -hmm. As you're talking, I, I tend to look at things through the lens of group therapy. And I was just mm -hmm. wondering if you could comment, because I know you and Doug were very involved in groups for a long time together. If you could share a little bit about how that might come out in, in a group therapy context, the, the motivations, the conflicts, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm constantly in group, trying to use group process to develop that internal conflict or to, to examine the self discrepancy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I like to use here and now interventions. And so when I find kind of defenses that show up in the room, like for instance, our group, I, I work from uh, a lot from the, we call like the treatment frame, right? The, the agreements that people make in the room, uh, to, uh, agreements that they make to be in this group. Uh, and one of the, the commitments is around everyone develops a sexual health plan that has the commitments outlined of what they want to discontinue. And they also agree that they're going to tell the group the next time we meet if they've crossed one of those commitments, right? And so that creates this controlled tension, right? And when someone crosses their plan, for instance, but then doesn't disclose, it takes them like three sessions to disclose. Uh, I don't kick them out of group because they didn't follow the plan. I don't scold them for doing that, right? It's just a great moment to get curious about this contradiction between agreeing to this commitment, but waiting three sessions to honor it, right? So what was coming up for them? So what was the function of the dishonesty or withholding? Uh, and so then I, I get to see their motivation and their desire to, to be a, a member of this group to, to improve their sexual health, but then they made this mistake. And now they're in this tension of like, well, the only solution I had to preserve the relationships in the room was to withhold because I didn't want them to shame me. I didn't want them to condemn me. And then we get an opportunity to be like, all right, what well, does that feel familiar to you? Mm -hmm. Right? Are right. these some of the same relationship solutions that you've been deploying in your marriage that you just brought to us in the room that you felt like the only choice to preserve this attachment to withhold this part of my sexual behavior. So you dishonor the commitment, the fidelity commitment of your marriage, mm -hmm. and then felt that if I was open and honest about that, they would leave me, which might be true. So they decided to withhold it, to lie or obfuscate, right? Mm -hmm. So they just mm -hmm. brought that same behavior into the room. So I use group process yeah. to see one of the ways I use group process, right, is to see mm -hmm. if they create some of those right. familiar emotional tensions. So then we can reflect on it, get curious about it, evaluate it, see if this is a, a, a relationship pattern that they want to keep or if they want to stretch into new ways of relating. Mm -hmm. 
Right. New ways of relating, I think, is the key there. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So thank you for for sharing that example. Um, We're almost out of time for today, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if there were one or two takeaways that you would like our our listeners to to remember about today's conversation. What what would you like to, Mm -hmm. to throw out to them? Well, one, I think we talked about the sexual principles, right? Mm-hmm. So I can talk a little bit more about them because I think they're an important contribution where I'm trying to help folks consider an ethical framework that is not what we call act-centered, that this sex act is good, this sex act is bad, or this sex is healthy, this sex act is unhealthy. And it's definitely not a not a position I want therapists to be in. I want them to be the arbiters of what is good sex or what is healthy sex. I want them to facilitate a discussion where the clients with an ethical core or ethical framework can reflect on this and consider it and come to a decision based on those principles and their own values that they, they bring in because those are definitely not the only values that are at play here. But if they I hopefully think they create a nice start for the conversation. So in that conversation like implied is that there's no simple answer here. So it'd be nice to say like this type of sex act is always good. So this is all you should do, but it's not right. Because it all changes mm-hmm. based on context, based on who's involved, based on their values and what's pleasurable for this person. So hopefully I've encouraged folks to tolerate the ambiguity of some of these conversation mm-hmm. so they can have open, honest sexual health conversations with either their therapist or their partners. Great. Well, I cannot say how refreshing and how illuminating your, you know, both your research and and how you and Doug have really brought such a a breath of fresh air to the field, um, certainly to my life and my practice. And I just so appreciate you, Michael. And Thank you so much for being here. And I am going to hit you up for another opportunity to to talk further at some point about some of the kind of drill down on some of these issues that um, I think could use even more attention. Well, thank you. Well, this was a lot of fun for me and I would be delighted to return. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Great. Appreciate it, Michael. Take good care. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. It was incredible sharing the time with my trusted colleague and friend, Michael Vigorito, and discussing this really meaningful topic. Michael can be reached through his website at michaelvigorito.com. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.